0: Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, um, we are so grateful for this opportunity to open this book, to read the very words that you've put here. You've given to us all that we need for life and godliness in the words of Scripture, and so we're grateful for how you lead us. We're grateful for your Holy Spirit who, who takes your word and, and you, you transform our lives You fill us in Your mercy. You teach us in Your mercy. Father, we pray for Your grace this morning. We pray that uh, You would open up our eyes. As we continue in the book of Hebrews, what a a beautiful journey this has been this last few months as we continue through this book. Father, I pray that we wouldn't walk away from here unchanged by this book, though. I I pray that You would take the words of, of this epistle and continue to transform our lives. Might we hear the message that was written to this audience a couple thousand years ago and realize that these words are just as pertinent today. I pray that you would open up our eyes to see those areas of our lives where where we are falling into the same sin, where we are stumbling in the same way that these people were, were struggling. I pray that you would give us an eternal perspective. I pray that we would see not just the temporary things of this world that are around us, that we wouldn't live for those things, but that our desire would be you, that our joy would be you. And so, please teach us during this time, transform us and mold us, make us look more like Jesus as we encounter you here today. Amen. Well, several years ago, I uh, I was sit- waiting tables in Dallas. And our restaurant received a reservation from some celebrity guests. Uh, Jason Witten, who was the star tight end for the Dallas Cowboys, was one of our regulars. He and his wife would come in all the time. But on this particular Saturday brunch, he and his wife made reservations for four, for themselves and two of their friends, Jessica Simpson and Tony Romo. An undisturbed meal was of utmost priority for our entire staff. Everybody on staff, management, bussers, waiters, people in the kitchen understood that our role was making sure that they were able to enjoy a meal in our establishment. And so our team put together a system of protections to make sure that our guests would be able to enjoy their privacy. And the table, uh, it was considered unapproachable unless you had a specific task. And so... um, Unless you were granted specific access, you weren't to go near the table uh, to get a look or see who was, you know, do they, do they really uh, eat the same way? Do they chew their food? Do they, you know, these, these famous people, you know, who knows what life is like. And so uh, it was quite humorous actually uh, just to see everything that was put into motion and to watch the amount of work that went in to achieving nothing except a quiet meal. As you can imagine, there were barriers put in place. Not, not physical barriers where we barricaded the restaurant, but you know, they, they considered you know, where's going to be a place that's off to the side, that they're not going to be in public attention. Where's, where's the, uh, what barriers are we going to put in place so the team uh, is able to uh, take inexperienced staff, make sure they're not dumping water on someone, and making sure that guests didn't approach the table. There was a system that was put in place of keeping anyone away from that table that didn't belong. There were barriers and deterrence, rules and procedures. Nothing was to approach that celebrity table that was not supposed to be there. In the book of Exodus, we find a similar situation with a mountain. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites, they had found themselves escaping from Egypt. They spent several weeks in the wilderness. And then at the beginning of the third month, they came to a mountain, Mountain that you know is Mount Sinai. You're probably familiar with it. That's where Moses received the Ten Commandments. It's where the law was given. The people camped around there. And, and there at that mountain, God sent Moses to the people. And God put a system into place, into motion, a system of protections to make sure that nothing approached that mountain that didn't belong. There were barriers, physical barriers, warnings. And so preparation was made for the people. Barriers were put up. Markers were established that made it clear that no man and no animal was to cross that line. It was at this event that God was going to establish His relationship with His people. He was going to give them the Ten Commandments. He was going to institute a covenant with them. They were going to be in relationship with Him. But, no one, no one was to treat this holy God with irreverence. No one was to treat this God with flippancy. It was to be taken with sobriety, soberness, seriousness. Boundaries have been set up because God was unapproachable for sinful men. If an animal crossed the line, it was to be stoned to death. That's how serious this was. If a goat walked across that line, they were to kill it because that mountain was inapproachable. That's how somber this command was. And so if the animals couldn't cross that line, how much more so sinful men? How much more so... So if, if sinful men crossed the line and they tried to approach the judge of all, how, how much more so would they be punished if they had not been granted access? And so Exodus 19 accounts that on the morning of the third day, there was thunder. Thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, now don't, don't pass over... The, uh, the event and the scene that's taking place here. This is a real historical event that the people of Israel went through at the beginning of their nation. And don't pass over it as if it's some cute scene like Dorothy and the Cowardly Lion approaching the great and powerful Oz. You know, we, we enjoy stuff like that in the movies, but this was terrifying. This was nothing like Toto pulling a curtain back. The events that took place at that mountain that day were life-altering for, for thousands of people. It was life-threatening. It had barely begun and the trumpet had only blasted one time and we're told that the people were frightened. They were trembling. Jumping to Exodus chapter 19, verse 17, it says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Can you imagine that? We're going to come out of your tents and we're going to go meet God at the mountain after already trembling, smoke, fire, thunder, lightning. The terror of that day continued to escalate. God wanted the people, He wanted them to draw near to worship, but but His presence was overwhelming to them. And so, unless they had access, they were not to cross those boundaries because of the people's sin and because of God's holiness. And so they approached God And God, they approached, and God put His glory on display, and the entire mountain was on fire. Images of of terror, of of not only the smoke and the fire, but of the ground shaking, the sound of trumpets blasting throughout the day, through down, down, up and down the valley, Uh, and and God speaking, a a disembodied voice that the people heard. Well, in today's text, the author of Hebrews, he brings us to the climax of his sermon, and, and it takes us, it's taken us seven months to unpack this glorious epistle, but throughout all that He has shown to us, He's shown us how Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. And in today's passage, He paints a stark contrast between choosing Jesus and choosing all the other somethings that call out for your worship, that call out for your devotion. All those somethings that you worshiped before that keep calling back saying, hey, come back to me. Jesus isn't as much as he's cracked up to be. Come, come, do everything you used to do. Come, devote your time and your attention and your resources to me. Well, Jesus is put on in contrast with these other something else's in our lives. This contrast is presented as a comparison of two mountains: Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. In verses eighteen through twenty-one, the author of Hebrews stresses how inapproachable that first. That first, um, that first mountain was. And using seven images drawn from Exodus, this, the, the account that we just read, the author of Hebrews expresses all of the barriers and, and notes how, how these barriers caused the people to tremble and, and prevented them from drawing too near. He says in verse 18, "...for you have not come to what may be touched." a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg so that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You see, the Hebrews were awestruck when they experienced just a a glimpse of God's glory. What they had at Mount Sinai, my friends, was just a taste of the glory of God. They just got a glimpse of His holiness. And they got a glimpse of the feebleness of their humanity and the full weight of their sinfulness. We're told that even Moses, their leader, trembled with fear. And so we see that Mount Sinai... Was the inauguration of their covenant and of the law, but what stood out was that the mountain was inapproachable and, and there were barriers to drawing near to a holy God. For the people's own benefit, those barriers were put up in, and put in place because they didn't have a way of accessing. You know, it wasn't long after the experience at that restaurant when we witnessed great barriers put up to keep people from approaching a table of celebrities. I was, um, I was waiting tables on a weekday evening, and it was actually just one table away from that other one. And another one of our regulars came in for a good steak and an enjoyable evening. Came in by himself this time. And this time it was the Cowboys wide receiver, Des Bryant. And on this occasion, he was just dining alone and just wanted a steak dinner and a little bit of peace and quiet. And so I was taking care of him that evening. And in the middle of his dinner, a, a nine to 10 year old boy left his own family and approached Bryant's table to ask for his autograph. Des obliged, he made small talk with the child, and within a few seconds of leaving the table, the server who was taking care of that family came to me contritely, and she said, I, I'm so sorry, she, and she asked me, please convey my apology, my apology to Mr. Bryant. Uh, I, I didn't want to disturb his dinner, and I didn't realize that the child had gone over there, and, and she wanted to apologize to him, but she was afraid to approach the table herself. So I obliged the next time I stopped to fill up his water and I conveyed the message, and, and I'll never forget his response. Uh, he, he looked up at me and he said, "Are, you, are you kidding? Is that, that's what this is all about. If, if, if we can't take care of the kids, then we don't understand what we're doing here, do we?" He implied that all the fame and, and the show was nothing if we couldn't take the time to impact a child's life and, and talk to a child and sign an autograph, in just a few moments could impact that child forever they're the ones that we do all this for he told me you see Des Brian had no difficulty understanding the concept of approachability and he removed the barriers again in an infinitely more glorious fashion god has done the same thing for us god desires for us to draw near He desires for us to be in relationship with them. In our passage today, it uses the word to come. The the concept of drawing near has been brought up over and over and over throughout the book of Hebrews. And it's this idea of worshiping Him. He longs for us to be in relationship with Him. To draw near to Him. To be in relationship for a lifetime in which our lives are changed for His glory and our good. But we cannot approach a holy God if the barrier of our sin is not properly dealt with. But this is the glory that we find in the superiority of Jesus. And really, this is what we've been discovering throughout the whole book of Hebrews. You see, Jesus has made a way. Jesus has removed the barriers, and He has made the way for us to come. And so contrasted with the terror of Mount Sinai, watch how the author Hebrews contrasts the festal joy that we find at Mount Zion. Look at how he brings out this contrast with seven more images of the second mountain. You see, instead of a physical mountain on earth, Mount Zion represents God's dwelling place. This is the heavenly Jerusalem, he says, where we are actually invited into the presence of God. The first mountain shook with darkness and gloom. But this mountain, we are invited to come into His very presence. At Zion, we come to innumerable angels and in festal gathering. Don't, don't miss the picture there. Uh, can, you, can you imagine if our sabers, okay, when they go to state and, and they win the championship and we're sitting at that game? Can you imagine the, the tournament, the excitement, the, 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 uh, the thrill of the moment? Imagine being in the crowd when the winning score seals the victory for our team. Imagine turning to your friends and in that moment expressing, you know, that was quite spectacular. We should go home and sleep on this and carefully evaluate the meaning of this accomplishment. Is that what would happen? Absolutely not. You're going to raise your hands. You're going to cheer. You're going to call out. You're going to shout and lift your voice until you can't anymore and celebrate because of that moment. It calls for you to express yourself with all the emotion that you've been given in life, right? And that's the picture that we have here. Myriads. Myriads. Innumerable numbers of angels. Angels. I'm really being redundant today in my words, but it works, right? Myriads of angels beyond comprehension celebrating as they rush the field. Imagine being in heaven, and that's what's described for us. The mountain at Sinai was unapproachable, but Mount Zion? This is a, a celebration, a festal gathering, a, a party of parties. Add to this the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You see the picture that he uses, the words that he uses, those are the words that were used at sporting events. This was the excitement that took place at the games in Athens and Corinth. It was a festal gathering. And it's not just the angels, but those of us who are the firstborn, those who have our names written in the book of life. You see, Christian, that's you. The the, the word that's translated as assembly in that verse is the exact same Greek word that we translate church, ecclesia, assembly and church. It means the same thing. And so it, it, you are a part of the assembly of God's people. And if you are redeemed, then your name has been written in a book and you are an heir of God's kingdom. Not just a participant, not just somebody that gets to tag along for the ride, but an heir of the kingdom. Not only do we come to a heavenly city and to an angelic party and to an inheritance, but look at the next one in verse 23. We come to God. We draw near to God Himself. The Judge of all. Because Jesus has removed the barrier that was caused by our sin, we are now able to boldly approach the heavenly throne to walk right into His throne room right now. And I want you to understand, this isn't just a reality that will come to be realized in the life to come, but it has been granted to us today to boldly approach His throne and to come before Him in prayer day after day, moment by moment. You no longer have to go down to Jerusalem and visit with a priest in order to get some kind of limited access to God. Jesus has opened the door. Jesus has gone in before us. And you have access to the throne room. Thank you. Somebody's partying. We have reason to. At Mount Sinai, the people were told they they could not endure the order. God God spoke. They they were frightened that if, if even a goat crossed the line... I'm not going near that place. I'm not going near this mountain. And though there were barriers, rather than go as far as they could so they could experience and draw near to this God, we're given a different picture in that passage. You see, they heard God speak and they were terrified. And rightfully so. I mean, His presence is overwhelming. But contrast their response to this. At Mount Zion, we come to a place where the spirits of the righteous have been made perfect. Jesus died for our sins. And through faith in Christ, who died on the cross, God has forgiven our sins. God has declared us righteous. And one day we will stand before Him completely free from the presence of sin. His people are made perfect. Don't you look forward to that day? when we fully realize the implications of all of these things. Last of all, we don't come to Mount Sinai led by a prophet who himself was trembling with fear. He's probably referring to the passage when Moses came down and he realized how the people had sinned with the golden calf. And Moses was afraid for the people. He was afraid because of their sin. And he pleaded with God to spare their lives. He trembled with fear, knowing what a holy God they were before. You see, at Mount Zion, though, we come to Jesus. And He is the one who has inaugurated a new covenant with His blood. Mount Sinai stands for the Old Covenant and the law and all the barriers that held us back from God's presence. But in Christ, we are finally able to draw near and to approach the object of our worship in reverence and with great awe of His holiness. But Jesus has led us behind the curtain where the barriers have been removed. Once again, he drives the point home that Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. And he compares the blood of Jesus with the blood of Abel. I, I, I've read that in the past. and That's kind of an interesting you know, picture. You, Abel being killed by his brother Cain, if you remember the story in Genesis 4. Jesus' blood being spilled out. What's, what's the contrast here? And uh, it's, it's not that he's centering on the sacrifice itself, but the, the blood being spilled out. Jesus' blood is being spilled out was better than Abel's blood being spilled out. And here's what I think he's driving home with this. You see, when Abel, when Abel was murdered by his brother, God comes to confront Cain. Do you remember what he said? What, what, did he, what did he tell him about Abel? Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. It's as if his blood was speaking. And remember, we're talking about God's words and God speaking to the people here in this passage, right? And Abel's blood was crying out. And what did it cry out? It cried out for justice. It cried out that something would be done about this horrible thing that, that, that has happened. But contrast that with the death of Christ. When Jesus' blood was spilled out, He didn't cry out for justice against the people that crucified Him. He didn't cry out for God to please do something. Please remedy this situation, this horrible thing that's happened. When Jesus cried out, He didn't cry out for the law. Jesus cried out and said, it is finished. It's done. And so the work has been completed and the barriers have been removed. All of them. And so now we have something in Jesus that is far better. Far better than Mount Sinai. Far better than the blood of Abel crying out. Justice has been accomplished in that Jesus paid the price. All of it. I don't know if you noticed, but um, at the beginning of our passage today, uh, I skipped over an important word. I skipped a very important word at the very beginning of today's passage. In verse 18, he starts out with the word for. And we've talked about how that word for is a really big word. It doesn't look like it, but it's important, isn't it? That small word indicates that this contrast between these two mountains, Mount Sinai and and Mount Zion, is a continuation of the conversation. Not, Not a brand new thought in our passage. If we go all the way back to chapter 10 we saw that the author of Hebrews is, is bringing home the argument. He's, he's been arguing how Jesus is superior. And, and in chapter 10, he concluded with a call for his audience to endure. Life gets tough sometimes. Persecution is hard. People are difficult. Being a Christian and walking with Jesus in this world has its challenges. And he recognizes that, and, and, and he calls the people to Endure. Throughout all of chapter 11, He gave them example after example after example of those who walked by faith, and thus they endured to the end. And He finished it off by showing how Jesus, in chapter 12, is the founder and the perfecter of our faith who set the perfect standard for enduring because of the joy that was set before Him. But but I think in the back of, of the mind of the author of Hebrews, there's always this idea that there, and the reason he's writing this epistle and preaching this, what was originally a sermon to these people, is that there was a very real temptation that they had. It was always there. The preacher knows that his audience was facing increasing persecution. They were tempted to return to the law and to that old system, and, and, and it had its appeal, didn't it? Have you ever thought about some of the forms of worship we have? I mean, you go to these big cathedrals. Some of some it's just very appealing, isn't it? There's, there's a system to it. There's, it's systematic. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Some of the music, the chanting, or, or the, the rock concert, whatever kind of... There, there's, a lot of it is wonderful. There's some aspects to it. And, and in Jerusalem, when you went to the temple, there were so many things that were just amazing that were going on. And there was structure and beauty and organization. And, and, and then they joined the church. And all of that is there, but in a different way. We don't go to Jerusalem to worship at a temple, but we're meeting in a house with other Christians and there's this pastor who has no you know, experience and no training and, and he's just trying to survive and, and shepherd people and teach God's Word and, and people are trying to use their gifts and figure out how all this works, but, but wow, what God is doing through it. But a lot of that structure and the temples and the buildings wasn't a part of this new system. Not in the same way, and so there was a temptation to look back to all that and say, "Well, in Jerusalem we've got these priests, and did you see the priests' attire and that, that purple sash? I mean, it was just, there was beauty to it." And so a lot of these Christians were going, "Is Jesus really better? You know, they don't have we don't have the gold on the temple here, but we're looking forward to something else in heaven and." Uh, Maybe I should go back to that. There's an appeal to that system, the sacrifices, the priests, everything, all the holidays and the calendar year. They're tempted to return to the law and the old system that Jesus had replaced. And so after giving them all the examples from the hall of faith in chapter 11, he urges them once again to endure. And last week, Pastor Jared walked us through the first half of chapter 12. And he showed us how we can expect trials and difficulties in our life. You know, we In Christian life, we sometimes think, well, I'm not supposed to suffer. I'm not supposed to have a hard time, right? But quite contrary to that, as Jared showed us, Scripture t- tells us, expect these things. It, there will be difficult times. There will be trials. And rather than see these things as something to be afraid of or something that we need to reject or something that we need to think that, well, God's punishing me because life isn't perfect, rather... We should embrace God's discipline as the training ground that shows us that we're loved by our Father and He's preparing us for something better. We endure because God has something greater ahead for us. Now contrasted with this, Jared showed us, contrary to Hebrews 11 where you have all these incredible examples of people of faith, who who did we look at last week? It was a bad example. Quite the opposite of the hall of faith. Here's a person that didn't have faith. Esau. And Esau was a man who was driven by the things of this world. His values were misplaced because he was not concerned about the things that are eternal. And so that word for that began today's text, it indicates that this contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is a continuation of the contrast between Jesus and Esau. The Hebrews, like Esau, were tempted to ignore the bigger picture. We saw that Esau despised his birthright because why? He's hungry. I want food. Now. And so he took something that had incredible value and he traded it away for a bowl of stew. And now, as Hebrews is being written, that Hebrew audience that this epistle was written to, they stand at that same climactic point that Esau was at. When fixing our eyes on Jesus becomes difficult and the trials of this life weigh us down, will, they, will, will the Hebrew people draw near to Him? Or will they trade it all to go back to that old system? To the something else that they used to love and used to worship? Mount Sinai is the bowl of stew. And they were ready to trade the one who had removed all the barriers for something that was only of temporary value. And I, I believe that we also face similar challenges, similar temptations. And as we've discussed through the book of Hebrews, I know that n- none of you are, are getting ready to go start sacrificing lambs and find a priest. You know, uh, we're not going to cover the outside of our building with gold. I know that none of you are longing for those things and looking for those things, but as strong as the pull was for this Hebrew audience to go back to that, I know that there's a pull for many of you to go back to something else. You love Jesus and it's been a nice ride, but I really enjoyed my life before. And Hebrews is a message for you. And that bowl of stew is right there saying... This is going to feel good right now. This is going to satisfy right now. Rather than keep an eternal perspective on the things that God values, there's a temptation to go back to all those something else's that call for us. And here's the pinnacle of Hebrews. In verse 25. The final warning to his Hebrew audience uh, is here in the end of chapter 12. Look at verses 25-29. Just 25 through first. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Do you, do you hear the contrast that he's still making? God spoke from Mount Sinai. God speaking from Zion. Do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Note the contrast between the two mountains. You see what happened in Sinai, Sinai when God spoke. Rather than draw near, we're told that the people stood far off. In Exodus chapter 20, it says twice, Moses had gone up on the mountain, he got the Ten Commandments, he comes down and he shares them with the people, and it tells us that the people stood far off. They backed away. In chapter 20, it says, they, they, they cried out and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not... Let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. When God spoke, they withdrew. And soon after this, we see them reveling in their sin. Hebrews commands us, they, 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 they built a golden, a golden um, calf and they worshiped it. And when Moses came from the mountain, there was a lot of bad things that were going to happen. You see, Hebrews commands us to live in God's presence. And he, he gives us this warning. He says, do not, do not refuse Him who is speaking. At Sinai, the people faced God's judgment, but now we've come to an even greater mountain than Mount Sinai. Mount Zion is a place where the barriers have been removed and we have been made righteous and God Himself is accessible to us. And so if the consequences and the judgment were that great at Mount Sinai, how great will it be if we refuse the One who speaks from heaven? How much greater will the consequences be if we refuse Him now? My friends, God has given us great privileges that come um, with having our names written in His role. We are heirs of heaven. Add to this all all that God has given us in His Word. All that we need for life and godliness is, is here in this book that we carry with us. That you can read anytime you want to. And now, we, we even live in a time where right there on your phone. I mean, you got your Bibles right here. You don't have to carry around a book. And it's even more biblical because you can scroll. It's bad, I know. (laughs) Let the cry of the Hebrews from Mount Sinai never be the attitude of your heart. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. Don't refuse Him, but embrace His Word. Read His Word. Study this book. Obey this book because it's your life. Let His law be your meditation day and night. As Cindy read for us a few moments ago, as the deer pants for the water, so may your soul long for Him to speak to you. I pray that we would be people who love God's Word. This living and active blade that penetrates to the inner places of the soul and the Spirit where no man is able to go. Love Him. Hear Him. And do not refuse His Word. He continues in verse 26, and he says, at that time, His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We've seen in each instance that Hebrews offers a strong warning. We've watched this throughout the book. There's been four warnings so far, and this is the fifth. Five warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews, and each of those warnings is followed up with an encouragement. And this is now the fifth and final warning of the book of Hebrews, and once again, he turns from the warning to encouraging his audience. Encouraging them to remember God's promise. And this time he turns to the Old Testament prophets, and he uses what we call Jewish midrash, uh, basically, Midrash is, is basically taking a quote from the Bible and quoting it while paraphrasing it and giving commentary in the middle of it. So if you hear me reading a text like I did a few minutes ago and I stop for a second and explain something, that's kind of Midrash. Um, and so, so he's doing that with Haggai 2.6, one of the minor prophets. And he's, he's quoting he, Haggai, but he's going to weave his interpretation into the quote. Uh, In fact, he's going to switch the order around of the original passage to make a point uh, about the judgment that's coming. Basically, he's providing commentary, but he attaches his comments with the quotation to show us that in the future, God is going to shake the earth like he did at Mount Sinai, but he's not only going to shake the earth, he's going to shake the entire universe from bottom to top, earth to heaven. Haggai Haggai was a message to a people who, who needed encouragement. Haggai was all about building a temple, and they'd come back from exile, and the temple was, it, it was bad. And they started building it, and then they quit, and years went by, and, and God says, why aren't you obeying me? Build this thing. And so Haggai is a prophet who goes to the, to the people and encourages them and gives them God's message, and they, they eventually do build that, that temple there. So it's one of those great minor prophets where they obeyed God uh, rather than didn't listen. So in Haggai, God encourages the people and He reminded them that He would one day judge the nations and that the glory that would be witnessed at the temple in the latter days would, would one day be greater than even what was experienced at Solomon's temple. And so Hebrews picks up on all of this and he reminds us that the day of the Lord is still going to come. There, there's coming a day when God is going to judge all things. And everything that is temporary, Everything that that does not have a firm foundation is just going to, to crumble away. It's going to just wash away with the wind and the water. But we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then your inheritance is secure for those who have Jesus as His foundation. Their foundation. And so the question... Because Hebrews tells us, don't, don't refuse Him. Don't, don't not listen. Don't reject His Word. So, so what needs to be our response? And Hebrews 12 gives it to us. He's going to give us a lot of other applicable things in chapter 13. A lot of very practical ways to apply this whole book. But the immediate response that He gives to us here at the end of chapter 12 is this. Acceptable worship. Don't you long to stand before God and to worship Him and to know that the way that you worship is acceptable to Him? Isn't that a good, wonderful thing? Give Him acceptable worship. And acceptable worship here in chapter 12 starts with thankfulness. It starts with thankfulness that, that that inheritance is ours. And as you're tempted to go back to these other things and to abandon the, the faith that has transformed your life, as you are tempted to you know, just live out of mediocre Christianity, to embrace mediocrity because, well, I've got the best of Jesus and I'm going to take the best of the world too. To live like Esau, so to speak. When you're tempted there, Come to Him with acceptable worship that starts with thankfulness for the inheritance that is ours. Remember what Esau did with his inheritance; he traded it away for a bowl soup. I'm sure it was better than Campbell's, but talk about temporary. Acceptable worship means that you first value the things that God values. You love the things that God loves. Number two, I suggest to you that acceptable worship includes hearing and responding. Don't act like the Israelites who stood far off when God invited them to draw near. Even with the barriers, they were invited to draw near, but they stood away. Moses, you go talk to Him. We don't want to hear His voice. Don't respond in that way. Draw near. Approach Him. Listen to Him speak. His Word has been clearly communicated in Scripture. Everything that you need to live a godly life, life. everything that you need for life and godliness is here in this book. And you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, leading you, helping you to understand these things. He interacts with His Word and He uses His Word to transform our lives. Verse 29 concludes with the statement that our God is a consuming fire. Reminiscent of the fire that the Israelites saw on Mount Sinai, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, Moses told the next generation of the people, right before they went into the land, he told them, our God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Isaiah and Zephaniah and Jesus, they all quote this verse, and they remind us that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a God who judges His enemies, who Who judges those who reject him. And my friends, he does not share his glory. He doesn't share because he's worthy. If God shared his glory and said, you know, although something else is in your life, eh, it's okay. Go for it. Come back when you want a little bit of Jesus and then go enjoy the rest of it all. If he did that, would he be declaring how great Jesus really is? That would be contrary to everything that is his glory is wow! He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all these things. And so it is right for Him to expect our worship. It is good of Him to expect our worship. If He didn't expect us to worship Him, then He would be holding back something good that He wants us to experience. That He wants us to have. And so it's right for Him to expect our thanksgiving. It's right for Him to expect us to draw near. And it is good of Him That he has invited us to do so. And so let us go out from here with a renewed determination to value that which is eternal and love the things that God loves. As our praise team comes forward today and we close our service, you know, I'm reminded that that there are only two things which exist on earth which will last for eternity. Do you know that? There are only two things in this lifetime on this planet that are going to last for eternity. God's Word. And people. Everything else, is going to perish. Your homes, your cars, all the money in the world, the politics, the news, the games, the sports. All the things that we devote our time and attention to that call for our worship and call for us to Devote ourselves good things, evil things. God's word and people. So listen to him. Worship Him. Listen to His word and do not refuse Him. And let us draw near to Him. Joyfully living out the Christian life as we celebrate with the angels. Let us demonstrate grace in the similar way that He lavished it on you. And remember that you are heirs of heaven. And So let us live as sons and daughters of the kingdom as we endure for the joy that's set before us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the gifts that You've given to us. We thank You that heaven is ours, that salvation is ours, and for each of us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, our sins have been removed and the barrier is gone and Jesus has gone before us. And the implications to this are astounding. And I know, Lord, that we've only begun to, to grasp and to uncover those implications that Hebrews lays out before us. It, it is my prayer that as we listen to Your Word, that, that we wouldn't reject what You have to say. But but Lord, that we would take this message that we've discovered this last seven months and that we'll see applied in this next chapter over the next couple weeks. Lord, help us to live this out in a way that would honor You. That would glorify Your name because You are holy and You are good and You have invited us to relationship. And You made it possible through the blood of Jesus Christ that cried out, it is finished. Lord God, if there is anyone here this morning that still has not received that gift of salvation, that it, their name is not yet written in the book of life. Father, I, I, my prayer is that You would soften their hearts even right now, that they would turn from their sin, even in these moments, and that they would fall at the mercy of the cross and accept the free gift that You give to them. Father, I pray that You would transform us, that You would make us look more like Jesus, this One who is far superior and far better, And might our lives thrive in your goodness and in your mercy. Amen.